Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Little Mother Up the Mortarberg by H.G. Wells. This was first published in The Strand, April 1910. It is a very rare thing for Wells. It's a sequel story um, to a story we have already covered called My First Aeroplane, um, which we talked about back in episode 244. And... Um, I think I tried to sell you as, these as a package. <laughs> um, one of the things that I think is really important for uh, people to do, uh, other than read the story, which I think is a very good idea because it's very short and it's also um, it's quite funny, is uh, check out our PDF version because it's in color. This is something relatively rare in, um, in early publishing. This is from 1910. The original um, story, My First Aeroplane, was from the Strand Magazine, January 1910. And this is just a few months later, uh, April 1910. Um, and the events of this story are foreshadowed at the end of uh, My First Aeroplane. And um, I notice that he doesn't really set up anything else for the end of this. So I, I'm not sure if that means he got tired of, of <laughs> a series after only two. Uh, or if it was always intended to be too, but, um, I could have imagined a whole book of this character, although he's, he's kind of annoying <laughs> as well as, uh, I mean, annoying. If, if you were around him, I, I would see viol physical violence perhaps coming from a lot, a lot of people around me. I would just try and get out of his, his sphere of influence because he's, one of the worst people I've ever met in a story. <laughs> <laughs> but, but when you say worst, um, I think I mean, he's not a monster. Um, he's not uh, a criminal. Um, he's just so blithely self-satisfied. And he looks at everyone else as being such fools if they don't see things his way that he's... Uh, He's rather, I mean, he's annoying in that uh, he's impervious to yeah. any recognition that he is uh, potentially wrong, <laughs> uh, unskilled, uh, what have you. But the thing is, uh, he and he, he causes harm to other people in my first airplane. He doesn't actually harm anybody in Little Mother up the Mortarberg. So no one's if one killed. No one's killed, but he, he does, like, n almost kill some people. He almost drops an, an axe on somebody's head and misses sure, them by 30 inches. But, but as, he says, it, as he says, exactly, it, came, it didn't come within 30 <laughs> inches of them. Why are they making such a row? <laughs> right, you almost but, killed them, but I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> he almost kills, kills uh, his fellow hikers with, uh, you know, rocks coming down, but... It was right. it was very unimportant because he seems to be blessed by like the god of perverse luck, right? <laughs> what would kill anyone any other person, um, has no effect on him. He just flees the country and goes to Switzerland to get away from his creditors or debtors. I Actually, guess you know 
the, the question of whether or not he's blessed by the the gods with perverse luck is, I think, a real one in the story. And I'd like mm-hmm. to address it. But to make sure that everybody uh, understands the story, um, how about just a, a quick recap, if I may. Sure. Um, it, 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 the story is really in the details and the telling in hearing his voice in this first person narrative. But um, just the, the barest plot um our narrator and his little mother, he always refers to her as little mother, are at a, uh, a Swiss, an Alpine uh, hotel. They decide, he decides to go do some mountaineering. He takes her with him. They stop at a mountaineering hotel further up in the mountain range. Um, and from there, they decide to go out and conquer the Mörderberg, uh, Mörderberg, um, which everybody who has actual experience as a mountaineer tells him he shouldn't do. And he certainly shouldn't do it with his mother. But the mother just says, well, is it safe, dear? And he says, yes. And she's old and skinny and slight. And so he takes her with him. He employs two guides, two porters. And so the five men and his mother go and in fact, they get a hammock and they sew her into the hammock and sling her between the two porters so that she can be brought up the mountain. Um, there are points at which her foot sticks out and they use her as a rope. So someone <laughs> behind grabs her foot. And at that point, the mother says, uh, well, they were all pulling my leg. Ha ha ha. Um, there's there's jokes to plenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and. The people down below, the experienced mountaineers, are quite right. This guy is liable to get killed and to kill his mother in the process. Mm -hmm. But as you say, it doesn't happen. Um, They go down the the other side of the mountain, the the hard side, and in fact cause an avalanche and uh, wind up just behind the snow rather than in front of it. And so um, he's slaloming down uh, with his legs forward. A glissading, and she gets caught up and becomes a huge snowball. Um, and yet they both survive, and they get back to the hotel before the uh, the guides do. Uh, and he claims a a uh, a record for being the first and fastest vegetarian <laughs> to get to the uh, summit of this the Mörderberg and then return safely. They all say, no, no, no. But he says they're just uh, jealous of him um, because, and this is the last line of the story, um, it is queer how people detest a little originality. And one of the things that makes the story so good is that, as you said at the beginning, Jesse, this guy is terrible. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. He is such, a, 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 he's reprehensible in so many ways. But the fact is, people often do detest a little originality. Now, his originality is detestable. <laughs> but, but it, it, and that's sort of in keeping with, uh, is he blessed by the gods? How is it that he manages to do everything wrong and yet survive? Uh, so I want to go back to that, for, if I may. If that, does that seem like a fair mm-hmm. overview of the story? Okay. It does. Um, so he's, he's dragging his mother along with him. And we learn from the first story, My First Airplane, his mother's the one with the money. Um, but he, he's her only child. 
she defers to him a lot, but he'll, you know, she'll ask, is this right? Is that right? But he's always self-confident uh, to a fault. He lies to her all the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she does. But, she never yeah. calls him on it. Nope, she never does. And, and she lets him put her in danger, in mortal danger. Um, so I asked myself at a certain point, how would this story be different if instead of watching the relationship between the narrator and his mother, we were watching the relationship between the narrator and his father, mm. his brother, his son, his daughter, a friend? What is there about having a little, old, wiry, doughty mother um, that makes this story what it is? And what occurred to me, Jesse, is that, as you say, she never calls him on it. What, what makes this fellow who he is, among other things, is that he has been raised always to know that he is right. He yeah. Is she utterly accepted exactly. She made him this way. She made him this way, and that strikes me as an underlying, very captivating question: Should a mother really indulge a child, make the child feel secure and loved, and so on? And risk a child not recognizing his own limitations. Now, H.G. Wells himself uh, grew up in a home in which the father suddenly failed, you know, and the mother had to take things over. And Wells, having been in one middle class economic state, was suddenly in a lower class, lower middle economic state and had to become an apprentice to keep the family going. Mm -hmm. um, he got an education, um, not by going to school, but by being uh, splitting the bounty uh, that a, a man with books, a headmaster, uh, would get. He would get uh, Wells as a student, would take exams, national exams, and the teacher would get a bounty and split the bounty with Wells. So mm -hmm. he just lent Wells the books. Wells learned like crazy. He was very bright. And that's how he did his schooling and then won a scholarship to the university. Um, he really had to work his way up. He didn't have a mother who could just say, here's the money. Here's my love. Everything will be fine. He, mm -hmm. wore, he grew up in a different world. As, for example, although he says in, uh, in this, in uh, a modern utopia, um, that vegetarianism is sort of an ideal um, state here, vegetarianism is thoroughly satirized. Uh, so Wells has this way of being both sides. You know, mm -hmm. he doesn't just say this guy is wrong because the mother is there. Maybe we should recognize where he came from. Absolutely. Anyway. I, I, I want to read some, especially from the first page, but before I even read, you know, the first, uh, giant couple of paragraphs. Um, I, I want to just look at the first sentence um, because I noticed it uh, on my second reread. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. So this is the first sentence. I think I mentioned when I was telling how I sailed my first airplane that I made a 
kind of record at Arosa by falling down three separate crevasses on three successive days. So he's bragging uh, right. in multiple ways. Well, first of all, he's saying, I sailed my first airplane. So he's going to have a second airplane. He's anticipating it in the other story as well, right? My first aeroplane. What about his second airplane? Well, that is to come. I am an aviator. We are told that in this story as well. He's He's got an aviator's nose. <laughs> <laughs> um, in addition, he's making a record out of nearly killing himself three times and having to be rescued by um, his fellow hikers, right? But I did a count. It's five times he uses the word I in this relatively short sentence. I think I mentioned when I was telling how I sailed my first airplane that I made a kind of record. That's a lot of eyes. Everything's about him. Yeah, and there's a Mayan there as well. Uh-huh. And then what's so interesting is is I'm trying to understand his psychology. He is it's not narcissism exactly. It's it's like a it's a it's exhibitionism. It's about being the center of attention. It's about um it, he's he's constantly lying to himself as well as to his mom. <laughs> and 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 when he's confronted with failure on his part, that's originality, <laughs> which is a definition of of uh, failure, I guess, originality. But um, I just want to read the the opening paragraphs because it, it it tells us how to read it. It tells us you can't trust this guy and what he's saying. So I read that first sentence. I'm going to read the next one. That was before... Little mother followed me out here. When she came, I could see at a glance she was tired and jaded and worried. And so, instead of letting her fret about in the hotel and get into a wearing tangle of gossip, I packed her and two knapsacks up and started off on a long, refreshing, easygoing walk northward. Long, refreshing, easygoing walk. Okay. And he has to leave the hotel that he's already spent time in because his mother's just showed up. And I think he doesn't want her to talk to the people there and find out what he's been doing. So Mm. instead, he makes a fresh start by making her walk with him on a long, refreshing, easygoing walk. So (laughs) we continue. She was she was for going on. Uh, she Oh, she got a blister here. Refreshing, easygoing walk northward until a blister on her foot stranded us at the Megan Rue Hotel on the Sneehawk. Okay, so I looked these places up. You know, Arosa is a real place. Megan Rue is not a real place. Sneehawk, these sound like fake names. I looked up uh, the etymology for Megan Rue. The closest I could come to... Uh, is uh, stomach regret. <laughs> Actually, I think it means silent, silent stomach. Well, um, that rue, R-U-H-E, um, mm-hmm. is uh, also a synonym for to rue the day, right? Uh, Sounding-wise. Uh, in the same way that Mortarberg well, uh, sounds be, like a... Ger- but in German, rue is quiet. Okay, so let's talk about Sneehawk. So um, on the Sneehawk, this is, again, not a real mountain. Um, right. So looking at Mordeberg, um, 
I, when I originally saw this in the Strand magazine, I was scanning it. I was like, the Mortarberg, that's got to be a mountain that'll kill you, right? And then I thought, oh, he's taking his mom up there. Maybe he's taking her up to kill her. <laughs> Literally, he he is. It just so happens that he's not intending to kill her. And more importantly, um, he's impervious, as is she, to gravity, it seems. Um, so the Sneehawk, these are two sounds in my view. Sneeze and hawk, right? So we've got a lot of physical stuff going on. And later in the story, um, when he gets out his sandwiches and <laughs> they're a vegetarian ham sandwiches. <laughs> right. Um, and he, instead of having um, alcoholic brandy, he has, uh, what is it? Ginger cordial. Ginger cordial, yeah. Right. And everybody disparages his food. But uh, I want to continue at the beginning here because we find out a little bit more about why he doesn't want his mom staying at that hotel, the first one. Um, she was not. She was for going on, blister or no blister. I never met pluck like mothers in all my life. But I said, no, this is a mountaineering inn, and it sits me down to the ground, or if you per- prefer it, up to the sky. He, thinks his own jokes are hilarious you you shall sit in the veranda by the telescope and i'll prance about among the peaks for a bit don't have accidents she said can't promise that little mother i said but i'll always remember i'm your only son so this again goes to the idea that he was destroyed ruined spoiled by his mother so i pranced on i need hardly say that in a couple of days i was at loggerheads with all the mountaineers in that inn. They couldn't stand me. They didn't like my neck with its strong, fine Adam's apple, being mostly men with their heads jammed on. And they didn't like the way I bore myself and lifted my aviator's nose to the peaks. They didn't like my being a vegetarian and the way I evidently enjoyed it. And they didn't like the touch of color, orange and green, in my rough uh, serge suit. They were all of the dingy school, The sort of men I call gentlemanly owls, shy, correct-minded, solemn, uh, shy, correct-minded creatures, mostly from Oxford, and as solemn over their climbing as a car frying eggs. A cat. A cat. That makes more sense. Sage, they were. Great head nodders. And I wouldn't venture to do that thing like thatters. They always did what the books and guides advised, and they classed themselves by their seasons. So then we find out about more about the people in this uh, hotel, including some wonderful description by Wells of a guy whose skin is peeling all over, um, who is later ridiculed for his lack of sense, um, even though that is evident that he's out there every day hiking these massive cliffs and climbing. Um, I want to point out that how do they know he's a vegetarian? Because he tells them. Right? We can understand when he's in the uh, in the um, dining room of this hotel, he will make a big show of the fact that he's a vegetarian. So, Eric, I know you're a vegetarian, but I know you I pretty am. well. It's not the first thing you come up to people on the street and say, hey, my name's Eric. I'm a vegetarian. I eat special food, not like you. Um, and later on, there is a scene where he says uh, exactly what we imagine him saying 
in that dining room in the hotel. This is on page 445 on the top left-hand column. You might have thought that men like these, living almost in direct contact with nature, capital N, would have liked nature. Foods such as plasmon, protos, plobos, (laughs) digestine, and so forth. That's the kind of food he's eating, right? Uh, Right. That's natural. (laughs) (laughs) And he's, we know this kind of person. We know this kind of person because they exist. They somehow think that their way of doing things is the correct way of doing things. And from the outside, it seems absolutely insane um, because they're, they misunderstood reality in some way. And I think that's the, the humor and the, and the pathos of this story is that this guy can't exist. (laughs) He will not live right in our world. It just can't happen. And the the drawings, something's going to kill him, right? (laughs) Something's got to kill him. Um, uh, he, he smokes in the smoking room, just like all the other men, but he doesn't smoke tobacco. (laughs) He smokes some herbal product that just stinks up the place. Right. But it's better for you. He says, (laughs) what we have here is an unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're used to reading through what an unreliable narrator says in order to understand what's really going on. Mm -hmm. So Poe gives us unreliable narrators all the time, right? In The Black Cat, um, mad, you'll say. Why would you say I'm mad? Unhealthy? No, no, no. I understand everything. No, sorry, that's the telltale heart. I see everything. I hear from heavens to the earth. Oh, I'm so calm. Clearly not calm. So, you know, he's unreliable. With Poe's unreliable narrators, what we read through the narration is the mood of this fellow, the, the self-justification of this fellow in the black cat, for instance, and, and so on. Here, what we see is a stunning um, egotism that is not recognized. I mean, I, of course I'm right. So everything comes out wrong. So when he says natural food like plobos, <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing natural about it. He doesn't get it. He's unreliable. But in this case, the the gap between what he says and what we understand by reading through the unreliability to what's really going on makes him the butt of the joke. Mm-hmm. So instead of building terror, we, in fact, build humor or mm-hmm. Wells does. But he does it in ways that as Wells does it in ways that are subtle not just, I mean, it's clearly, it's overt, it's there, you know, the, the use of vegetarianism, for instance. But as you point out, um, the, the places that have German names have meanings, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to stay at the place with the, the quiet stomach um, because you're not getting decent food there, mm-hmm. right? The Sneyok, uh, you pronounced it differently, the snow yolk. That's if you think about the the coal, the the declivity between two mountains at the top and in the Alps, that's that's the snow yoke. It's really there. He's making up words that will give us a sense of what this all looks like to this guy. Right. He's he's using it. Um, He says there's this word that I can't remember Mm. for 
right? The, the, the place between the glacier and the rock next to it. Uh, and then later in the story, he remembers the word. Well, it turns out that there is, uh, he remembers it correctly, but that's not in fact the most common word for what he described. But the thing that he can't remember the name for, in fact, if you look it up, is described in dictionaries and in mountaineering dictionaries as a crevasse. Mm-hmm. It's a particular crevasse. So this guy's wonderful ability to fall down a different crevasse every day uh, comes from the fact that he's just unaware of crevasses. He can't even remember the damn name for them. That's why he's always falling down. And here's another example of the subtlety that that under that reinforces the the broader, more accessible aspects of the humor. You read to us um, they these uh, the other people at the hotel were all of the dingy school, the sort of men I call gentlemanly owls, shy, correct-minded creatures, mostly from Oxford, and as solemn over there climbing as a cat frying eggs. Oh? Cats fry eggs? They're solemn doing that? Mm-hmm. What the heck kind of a simile is that? <laughs> you just called them owls a second ago. <laughs> well, but, yes, but at least there was a reason for that, right? They're, they're shy. You don't see owls during the day, right? Um, they're correct-minded, so, you know, they're, they're, they're wise. They're solemn. Well, you know, owls sort of fit to that a little bit. Uh, but cats frying eggs? Where did that come from? Right? He just makes stuff up. And if we read slowly instead of getting caught up in his own enthusiasm, we can see that he's wrong. Uh, On page 447, I I love this line, the first full paragraph. Now, most discoveries are the result of accident. And I maintain that in that instant, Mother and I discovered two distinct and novel ways of coming down a mountain. And there's a lovely picture of him feet first glissading down the mountain, holding his alpenstock in his hand, trying to slow his fall, and the mother going horizontally, going crossways to the, the, the fall, so that she begins rolling and rolling and rolling and makes a, uh, a huge snowball. Mm-hmm. And he, later he claims that this was a wonderful discovery, and it was easy to do. You know, What's wrong with you people for not doing it? Um, there are two things wrong about this. The obvious one is this is not a great way to go down a mountain, as the, you know, as the guys at the bottom say, that was a miracle that you both survived. The odds against that were a thousand to one. It was a miracle. But go back to the original suggestion. Most great discoveries are the result of accident. Mm-hmm. No, they're not. Most great discoveries are the result of thinking about stuff. And or seeking stuff when people discover, you know, minerals in a mountain, it's not because they happen to be digging and accidentally found the minerals. <laughs> right. Most discoveries are sought. Some discoveries are accidental. Some discoveries are people, as Pasteur said, chance favors the prepared mind. Mm. But 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 this guy is wrong. The reason he's wrong is his discoveries are the result of accident because he doesn't have the wit to actually think forward. Oh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. This will make it work. That misstatement of his is a deep, deep aspect reflection of his character. And the fact that Wells can give us this character, make him delightful and use him to show what's wrong in 
many people's thinking, even our own sometimes, Mm -hmm. makes this story, I think, something that's more than just a series of jokes. It's something that can get you to really think about what we mean by having a way through life, by deciding on what something means to us. Um, I claimed a record. They said my methods were illegitimate. If I see fit, I said, to use an avalanche to get back by, what's that to you? You tell me me and mother can't do the confounded mountain anyhow. And when we do, you want to invent a lot of rules to disqualify us and so on. He doesn't really fit into the world. You made that point earlier, Jesse. But the thing is, the people who genuinely invent new things, the people who genuinely set records, they do fit into the world. They build on what the world has done, and they go some further. I don't think most of us think of inventors as not being of this world. We may think of, you know, the stereotypical professor or Albert Einstein, you know, whatever, being sort of absent-minded and not fitting in. But, you know, we understand that they know how to tie their shoes Mm -hmm. and they understand the world and are so deeply in their own thoughts that they may not pay attention to crossing the street. But they are thinking about our world. This guy reminds us that you need to think about our world to do something good for our world. And he doesn't. No. <laughs> so his, Wells his observations, makes an interesting point. His observations are just wrong on the face. This uh, one character he describes comes up near the end. Um, again, a, a patron of the hotel, one of the experienced climbers, says, look here, young man said the oldest young man with the little gray beard. You don't seem to understand that you and that lady have been saved by a kind of miracle. So he describes the man as an oldest young man with a little gray beard. He's an oldest young man. It doesn't make any sense, especially if he has a gray beard. He's just seeing the guy and not understanding that he's an experienced older climber. But he thinks of him as a young man, which is exactly what the ma- the oldest young man calls him. Young man. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he, he sees himself in that man, just older. <laughs> you know, just beyond the passage that you read to us at first from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, sage they were, great head nodders. You read that to us. Mm-hmm. And. They always did what the books and guides advised, and they classify, they classed themselves by their seasons. One was in his ninth season, and other in his tenth, and so on. I was a novice and had to sit with my mouth open for bits of humble pie. So he recognizes this. He lets us know it, our unreliable narrator. He doesn't mention anybody talking to him with fewer than nine years worth of climbing experience. So you're absolutely right. He gives us the information to know that he's wrong. And yet, um, as the, the smart, older young man says, um, 
he gets away with it. Don't we all wish that as children? <laughs> His line the first time he meets that oldest young oldest young man, um, oldest young man says, "When you've had a bit of experience, you'll know better." Said the oldest young man with the small gray beard, and then his line: "Experience never taught me anything." <laughs> About that, he's right. <laughs> Indeed, he is. So interestingly enough, um, he may be able to do nothing but talk about his great conquests. But look how much we can get from the way Wells put it. This is a story, a rare one for Wells, because it seems like it's basically a comic story, which may be why he didn't continue with the the series. Um, He does comedy nicely, as he does. He treats uh, Winter Wedderburn and the Strange Orchid in the same kind of way in the beginning. Um, And he 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 succeeds by by luck. Um, But a whole comic story, it's not Wells's uh, technique. And yet underlying it, he packs it with so much that for us, unlike our narrator, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.